This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Kalinko. Kalinko is a homeware company all the way from sunny Burma. They work with small family workshops all over the country to make gorgeous things for your home and are the perfect place for you to find something a little bit different, seriously special and wonderfully warming for your loved ones this Christmas. Kalinko works directly with the people who make their products and every time you buy something from them, they reorder a replacement from the makers straight away. This keeps money flowing into the pockets that really need it and talented people in skilled work. So head over to Kalinko.com to choose from gorgeous rattan trays, bowls, even ice buckets, exquisite lacquer bowls, unique hand-blown tumblers and vases made from recycled glass, mother-of-pearl jam spoons to make the simplest breakfast feel special, hand-woven cushions and textiles. I mean, there really is something for everyone, even for batty aunts and awkward in-laws. And each order comes with a bonus helping of the feel-good factor. To make it even snugglier, they've given you a 15% discount code to get you going. It's Desert Island Dishes, all one word, and the website is kalinko.com. That's K-A-L-I-N-K-O. Thank you, Kalinko. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all very well. I cannot believe it's only a week to go until Christmas. This somehow feels like the quickest, yet also the slowest year ever. (laughs) So we have a lovely episode for you today with Ryan, who has definitely inspired me to be a bit more proactive in going after my dreams and making stuff happen. There are so many things I want to do in 2021 career-wise, and I guess what I've learned from Ryan is that they just aren't going to happen if I don't start knocking on doors and sending emails. So look out, world, (laughs) and hopefully it might inspire you in the same way too. Ryan really does have an amazing story, and his Life Kitchen Christmas Cookbook is out now if you want to get a copy from his website. We recorded this in person, which was so nice to be able to do that again, socially distanced, of course, and short-lived as we are now in another lockdown slash tier three, etc. But anyway, enough of me waffling on. Here is today's episode. My guest today is Ryan Riley. Ryan is a food writer, stylist, and entrepreneur. He is the founder of Life Kitchen, which offers free cookery classes across the UK to people living with cancer. Life Kitchen devises recipes for those on chemotherapy and teaches them to cook despite loss of taste. Last year, he opened his own physical cookery school in Sunderland. Ryan has a contacts book that most culinary professionals would give anything for. His friends and supporters include the biggest names from the world of food, from Nigella Lawson to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and Jamie Oliver, all of whom are champions and fierce supporters of Life Kitchen. Ryan has written a book of the same name in which he shares innovative recipes which bring the pleasure of eating back to people living with cancer. This came out earlier this year and now his second cookbook, A Life Kitchen Christmas, has been released with more than 20 recipes, both quick and easy to do, which is free to order from his website. Ryan has said, every one of my culinary heroes are now supporters or friends. It's a bit bonkers, really. I think it's because cancer doesn't discriminate. You can be rich, poor, famous or not, and it can get you one way or another. If you're touched by it, you have a friend with it or you have it yourself, then you understand what it's like. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. What an introduction. (laughs) All very true. (laughs) It was such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And oh my goodness, Ryan, you've achieved so much in such a short space of time. I have so many questions for you, but I thought we might dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. This one I agonized over. Um, I run my organization with Kimberly, um, my best friend, and we were friends in Sabu too. And you don't understand, before I came on, I was on the phone and I was thinking, but what is it? What is my dish? <laughs> and we, we came down to one, and it's definitely panacle tea, right? Ooh. And this is a very northern dish. And the, the hairy bikers do one called pan haggerty. Okay. There's a lot of regional variations. And even Kimberly and I, who have been best friends for 24 years, disagree on what's in it. Okay. <laughs> so for me, it's 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 a dish of layered potatoes um onions um corned beef and bacon in a stock and cooked for hours and hours it couldn't be more 
classic working class, which I'm, I very much am at heart. It's just delicious. And it's the one that I remember eating that my, my nan would make it and my mum would make it. And then I make it all the time now. And my dad currently lives with me because you know, of the current situation. And it's the one he always asks me to make all the time. And it's what he credits me with being the closest to my mother. <gasps> well, that is a compliment. It is. It is. I mean, it's simple. It's kind of almost embarrassing at times. Corned beef is a horrendously uncool ingredient, but I love it. And I'm, I'm unashamed about it. Never be ashamed. That sounds absolutely delicious. So you say that your mother really loved to eat and she loved to cook, but you, you yourself say she wasn't exactly incredible at cooking. You say she had sort of five or six dishes that she sort of did on rotation and she did them really well. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of them. And I'll not mention any more because I think now you might answer to the next few questions. <laughs> okay. We- <laughs> but, but yeah, she was a brilliant um, cook on a few dishes, you know, the classics, a yeah. lasagna, a spaghetti bolognese. But for me eating and enjoying food with my mother it was all very based in home comforts and family meals yeah and 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 to her food was about it sort of the occasion more than the food so it was about enjoying it with family and friends yeah yeah and i always say this and this is no discredit to my family but kind of was to my food career i didn't really understand food i didn't know there was anything beyond those dishes or english breakfast at the calf down the road which was my first job at 11 you know i didn't know that was anything other than the Italian restaurant, which I now look back on and realise was pretty crap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we won't name it. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I didn't have a food education. I didn't have a food interest other than I loved the things that I was being fed. And I think it took me many, many years to get to the, the point that I'm at now. And I'm a self-taught cook, which only because I couldn't afford lease. I went and asked them if I could do it with them and do it cheaper. And they were said no. <laughs> and then I went on to teach myself. And, you know, from that education of not understanding food, I've really exploded in my head. And I've eaten at some of the world's best restaurants. I was lucky enough to have people who took me to them. And I've you've become this different person through the last few years. And I find it quite considerably amazing considering where I started. Yeah, it's incredible. And it, and that's such a good point that obviously as a child, you're just completely under the you know control of your parents and, and how they view food and what they choose for you to eat. It's sort of, yeah, it's the beginning of your journey and you have no control over what that looks like. Yeah, and it kind of was the beginning and the end of my journey in many ways because I was like, those are, those are the foods I eat. Those are the foods I like. And yeah. those are the foods I of course, I never go back to when I need comfort now. Yeah, of course. And I've always been passionate about comfort food. And I wonder if that's because of my childhood. So I want to ask you about your mother, Krista, but I want to say first off how terribly sorry I am for your loss and how much I really do admire everything that you've achieved. You were just 18 when she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I think I read that you literally became her carer overnight. That must have been the most incredible shock. Yeah, it was. It was also the most incredible way to find out. I was it's it's weird how life works. I was in the countryside with my friends having a day out at um, Kielder, Kielder Forest, beautiful lakes in the north. We had no signal and we just had a little disposable barbecue by the side. And I just remember having a conscious thought thinking, this is one of my favorite days ever. Oh. And I came back out of that into a bit where I had signal and I had a million missed calls and a million texts saying, you need to get home now. And just the juxtaposition between the the fact that I had a physical conscious thought saying I loved today and it turned into the the worst day of my life. Oh, Ryan. And, you know, I did have to become her carer. My dad had to go to work. My sisters were at uni. There was there was just me and her, and I was the one that she'd sit on the sofa with. And she wasn't trying to be the mother who protected me. She was trying to say, Ryan, I'm scared of dying. And she would tell me that, and she wouldn't tell necessarily my dad that, because we'd sit there under a blanket, watch come down with me. And, you know, they are some of the most precious moments to me, but they were very hard to hear as an 18-year-old. Yeah. And they're stuff that has stuck with me through my whole life now. Yeah. I think any child, it's a very strange point when you sort of start seeing your parent as a person rather than just a parent. But then obviously you're in the most extreme circumstances and sort of undergoing the most you know, tragic thing that can happen. So I can't even imagine. But I was thinking when I was reading your story that it, it must be so hard to talk about her and talk about your grief in public and it must be lovely in some ways that you get to talk about her and sort of keep the memory alive. But I just wondered 
it must have come with its challenges. Yeah, it comes with it comes with a lot of pain as well. I mean, I very much I don't know how many other people have to live out their grief every day so publicly. And I chose that path for myself. I didn't always know what I was getting myself into. And it's had its consequences at times. It was times when I would drink too much and party too much and I fell into this different lifestyle. You know, because I'm now I'm friends with all these people and I'm I'm, you know, members of private clubs and I'm part of a different world than what I grew up in. But I'm very much still grounded in the original world as well. And that can be confusing. Um, it can be really enjoyable. You can get loaded as this brilliant person who's done all these amazing things. But for me, the core purpose of why I did it is still the reason that I do it. And you can get carried away with the fun and the excitement. But the reason, you know, when someone eats a, a thing at my class and they're like, this is the first thing I've tasted in a year. Like that's, that's a moment. Not many people get to create for other people. No. And, you know, we don't always do things entirely just for the good of the world. There's obviously a selfish reason why I go out to help people and it's to heal them and myself in many ways. And the biggest thing anyone ever asked me is, is your mother would be proud of you. Do you think so? And I'm like, I think she would, but also her main concern in life would be that I didn't have a very st steady job. Oh. <laughs> She's like, I need you to go get a real job. <laughs> I actually got my nan, I gave my nan a copy of the Christmas book the other day and she said, when are you going to get a real oh job? <laughs> Thanks, nan. <laughs> so let's go back to the very beginning of Life Kitchen. So before Life Kitchen, perhaps the most extraordinary part of your story is your trip to the casino, which set into motion all of the events that followed. Yeah, it's a strange story and one that people, when I tell them, like, when are they going to make a movie of your yeah. life? And I'm like, I well, you know, I'm down for it if yeah, anyone wants to. Yeah, they know where to, to find you. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was an intense time for me. My mother was diagnosed at 18. She died when I was 20. Her biggest dream was to make it to my 21st birthday. She made it till the 8th of December, 2013. And for me, that was really, really tough because the day before she was technically in remission. She was always going to die from the cancer, but she was stable. And my friends and I were meant to be going on holiday. And I said, I don't want to go. I don't think I should. And she was like, you need to go. And for me, that was really tough because actually my last words with her weren't, weren't great. We were arguing about a suitcase. I was being a stupid teenager. And I said something silly that I shouldn't have said. You know, just I was obviously living in the pain and the grief and the sadness and the worry and it manifests in different ways. Um, at least that's what I tell myself now. No, of course. And um, It's not about the last words. No, I know. And that's what everyone tells me. <laughs> but um, they were difficult for me and I don't think I've ever really recovered from that. But I went to Malta and I landed and I looked at my Kim's system, my other best friend, Rachel, and I said, I don't think I should be here. I think I should go back. And she was like, no, no, it's fine. Let's go check in. And we did and we went to lunch. And then in the afternoon, I got a call saying, you need to get back now. Your mum's in hospital. And I said, like, how did this go from... She was like fine yesterday to not. And everyone was there with her and I was stuck in the bloody halfway around the world. And I tried to get a, a flight back. We couldn't find ones. So I had to fly to Manchester. And as, as I got through the Maltese airport security, my friends were like, shall we come with you? And I was like, it will be fine. And as I stepped through security, they were standing on the other side and I could see them. And I picked up my phone and my dad said, you need to say what you want to say now because she hasn't got long left. But in those minutes, she was dead. And now all I remember is passing out physically then and there. And I woke up on the runway of the Malta airport because some of the staff had took me out for some fresh air because my friends had begged them to do it. And it was just the most intense time of my entire life. You know, just to go from alive to dead in 24 hours, I do kind of think one of the reasons that she, she left this world is because... I wasn't there and she cared so much that I would, if I was there would have been a lot more difficult. I think so. When I, when I read that, that's definitely what I took from it. I think she waited for you to yeah. go. And I know and that's, that was very her, you know, she could tell me that she was scared of dying, but inevitably she wanted to protect me. I think the most out of any of us. And so I think it was three weeks after that. Uh, five that you, weeks. Five, five weeks. weeks. Okay. But I thought it was three weeks and I had okay. to, and um, part of my memory about this time is I find it really hard to remember the exact details. Um, I think that's my brain protecting myself from yeah. trauma. But five weeks after, I think it was some point in January, my friend had said, do you want to go on a night out? You're bloody miserable. And I was like, I am. <laughs> I was like, I don't really have any money. And I said to my dad, look, um, I just said to my friend Kelsey, I said, I don't want to ask dad. I don't want to say, like, can I have some money? He's just lost his wife, you know? And I said, well, well I've got 20 quid. Should we go to the casino? And, you know, I gambled a little bit, you know, on a night out after you go something to the casino because only that serves drinks. Yeah. <laughs> and my mum loved the bingo. Um, so she used to occasionally give us like 20 quid and say, if you win, just let it between you. And it, was a, it wasn't a gambling thing. 
So when I went and we played blackjack and there was a side bet and you could do one pound side bet would enter you into the jackpot. And if you got one ace, it was 50 pounds. So I said, well, in Newcastle, that's a great night out. Well, yeah, 50 pounds. Yeah, that's all, yeah. I, that's all I needed. <laughs> um, if you got two aces, it was a hundred. If you got um, three aces, I don't know, like 250 or something. If you got four aces of the same color in the same suit, it was the jackpot. So remember, I'm quite spaced out still in this time of my life. I had a drink. I sat down, put the first bet down, one pound side bet, two pound main bet, wasn't major gambling. And two aces came out, same color, same suit. But I didn't register that at the time. I just saw two aces. Jackpot board says a hundred quid. I was like, there's our night out. And Kelsey was like, oh my God, we could go. And I was like, well, this is brilliant. This is, you know, how wonderful. And then the dealer <laughs> said, would you like to split them? And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> so it's like, if you put two pound more down, you can get a chance to get two more cards. And I was like, okay. So she went around the table, came back to me, two more aces come out of the same color and the same suit. And I didn't register it in that moment. I just saw everyone look at me and Kelsey tapped me on the shoulder, go, Ryan, you've won. And I was like, I know I've got a hundred quid. And she was like, no, you've won. And it was the jackpot. And I won 28,000 pounds. Oh my goodness. I mean, that is just unbelievable. I know. And everyone's like, it was your mother. It was your mother. And in many ways, the coincidence is un, you know, undeniable. But I don't know. It was crazy, crazy time. And they gave you 10% there on the night. So 2,800 pounds, I had to go out in Newcastle that night. Oh my. <laughs> we stayed in the best hotel. I think I paid for everyone's drinks at the club. Well, I yeah, think I, I like, yeah, guys, you. no problem. <laughs> so before we find out more, let's pause there and talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that is the first dish you learned to cook. See, for me, this one is um, another mother dish. It was the ham broth with dumplings. Ooh. And it's just, you know, I'm, this podcast is going to be me being very northern, very authentically working class, because it's who I am at heart. Yes. And I find sometimes a juxtaposition between the, the life I live now and the recipes I write compared to how I actually eat sometimes can be a little bit different. But this dish for me, it's so simple. You know, dice up some potatoes, dice up some swedes, some carrot um, into some ham stock. Now, if you can't get real hamstock, and we never could, when I was in, it was in like a no cube. Okay. Try to find that yeah. in a shop. It's nearly impossible these a days. A hamstock cube. Yep. Yeah, I don't think yeah. they have And for one. a while, for a long time, years and years, I couldn't find it. And I went into Morrison's and it was there. A, a top tip. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and now I do it a lot, especially with my dad living with me. Like we're really going through like our child, my childhood and him looking after me, but me through food for him now. Yeah. So that's kind of like your version of a chicken soup. Like, yeah. I just you know what? Do you want to top secret thing i've never in my life had a chicken soup ever ryan i know really yeah i have this weird thing about chicken i love it i don't think it belongs on pasta or pizza and for some reason i don't yeah. love it i don't love the idea of it in a soup and i once got invited to um, submit a recipe to this big chicken soup thing and i was just like guys i've never actually made one <laughs> well, i mean i could it's very simple but um, i love that you admitted that to them well you know right you have to the thing is and this is no offense to the food world but so much of it can be a little bit on the not so real side sometimes and i've done that myself in the past you know sometimes you have to be someone to get up in this world it's very hard as a working class boy who has pretty much no money and no no training to fit in in the world that it is yeah and i find that quite you know insane so when i when when i chose this recipe it has to be a suet dumpling by the way okay. not a tour like yeah mix of flour occasionally i go fancy and put some leeks in the top yeah. there oh that also sounds delicious and yeah. parmesan on the top and you just you know you've got that synergistic umami which i talk a lot about in all my books yeah. So, um, but I mean, that's the astonishing thing about what you've done in such a short space of time is, is that you have taught yourself to cook in a really short space of time. So you got to London with your casino winnings and you decided to open a market store selling kiosas. Well, there's a tiny bit before that. Okay, tell me. So Kimberly and I, when, when I went back after that night, a bit hungover, I said to Kim, I've won this money. And she was like, sorry, what? <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I have. Here's a letter to prove it. And um, at the time, we'd been coming back and forth to London occasionally trying to just get an idea of what we wanted to do in our lives. And so with that money, we left our council flat where we were like months behind on the rent. We had no carpets. Like Kimberly had lost her mother years before and I'd moved in with her just to make sure that she's like, I didn't want her to be alone. I've always been that person. So I'd go between my mother and Kim and I just always loved people too much. I think is my, is my biggest fault. And when we, when we decided to go to London, 
We flew to Barcelona, had this ridiculous five-star hotel um, holiday, <laughs> what I thought like you should do when you had money. Wow. And we came back to London and we actually started a fashion magazine. Oh, hello. Yeah, so we started a fashion blog called LDNXX, like London XX. Yeah. And then it ended up get, getting kind of bought by a, a magazine called We Are Collision, who was a cultural, like a London cultural like thing, like one of those entities that was actually doing quite well. So we ended up doing like fashion shows. I'd be like sitting at London Fashion Week with no experience. I'm a terrible writer. I'm not even a really good food writer. I'm a good recipe writer. And we used to write this really crap blog, but I used to do some really cool stuff. I've always landed in really cool situations. It depends on what you define as cool, to be fair, but it was very cool to me then. And I just loved it. And we did that for a while. And in that time, the first thing I did with all that 28,000 is I paid a year's rent up front. Okay. Probably the only sensible decision I've ever made in my life. <laughs> to give you freedom to, to give then us freedom. figure out what you want to do. So we could just do this really ridiculous fashion magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and then we used to, we, we were 20. And what do you do when you're 20 living in London for the first time? And I had money. We were going to the shop at 3am and just buying a bottle of champagne and just drinking it in our kitchen <laughs> because we could. Well, yeah. <laughs> and from that moment, we, we, um, we spent a year doing that. And then we really got interested in food by Jamie Oliver, actually. Um, Jamie, Nigella and Nigel. And we used to have their books and we used to do a thing called the Jamie Sundays. So on a Sunday, we'd cook a recipe from a cookbook. And that is just literally how I taught myself to cook. Oh, that's amazing. And it was really, really simple. And I mean, way... that is, that must be Jamie's dream when he's writing those cookbooks. Is yeah. that that's what happens. Yeah. And, and for me and for Kimberly, it was, it was just a moment where we've both always been massively creative people and you do have to be a creative in food. The reason Kim's a chef and I'm a food writer is she has the discipline. I have no discipline at all. And when we decided to start that food stall, it was the same situation occurs quite a lot in my life. We were drunk um, <laughs> and we drunkenly emailed Camden Market saying, do you, um, we really want to open a gyoza food store and we bought a set menu. I'd never seen a set menu, but I thought this is what we're going to sell. And so what were gyoza something that you'd been making all the time? I, I just made them for the first time that day. Okay. You made them <laughs> once and then emailed Camden Market. I love it. Because I was drunk. I mean, what else do you do when you're drunk? <laughs> Most people drunk do X's and I'm like, hey, do you want to open a food store? And I forgot about it. And three days later, they emailed back and said, we don't have anything like this. Why don't you come do it? So I called dad and I was like, I think I don't have enough money to do this on my own, dad. And he was like, I'm not going to give you it, but I'll give you my credit card and you can get the cheapest of everything and give it a go. And we did. We opened Goy London, it was called, G-O-I London, on um, the first day. And Kimberly and I are ridiculous. So we said, let's not do traditional gyoza because we didn't really know. Let's do yeah. fusion gyoza. So okay. we made fish and chip gyoza, Sunday roast gyoza. Wow, okay. Sounds amazing. Now. Yeah. <laughs> it was the biggest disaster ever. A fish and chip gyoza. So sort of just... Fish and chips wrapped in I'd a gyoza. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think now it was kind of ahead of its time. Fusion food has become a thing in the last few years. But back then, on day one, it was terrible. Did so people, much, people like, hated what was, it. Oh, they hated did. It. Okay. And so much so that I got really upset and we closed at one o'clock. When the market manager came around to say, why have you closed? It's market still open. We said, oh, we sold out our first day. And I've always been able to talk myself out of a situation. <laughs> and then we went back that night, reinvented the whole thing, printed new vinyl banners in one day and opened the next day, selling slightly more classic things, katsu curry, gyoza. And that was two years of my life. We never made a penny. Oh, you didn't? That didn't matter. Okay. We, Camden was such a vibe back then, before it was taken over by the people that it is now. It had a real authenticity. Everyone, no one had to be that fancy or smart. Yeah. And for me... That was so cool. So we we might have 20 quid left at the end of the day and we'll just go to the pub upstairs and come to market. And every day, neither of us drive, still don't drive. We used to have to pack on the market stall, put it on a thing, like a little trolley, and wheel it up Camden High Street one mile to the lockup. Oh my goodness. And do it every morning. Wow. Every so, so from that, I guess that was your first business venture. What do you think you learned from that experience that you have taken forward into Life Kitchen? See, that's my first London business venture. Okay. I, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 11. Oh, you I used have? to run the okay. school tuck shop. I used oh, to make two did. grand a month at 11. <gasps> like, not for me, for the school, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, Kim and I have always been those people. But when we, in London, I think we, we use those experiences. What really think taught me to have the, profession I do today is those interactions with customers every day over the market stall and having to be inventive. And that was the moment I decided I wanted to be a food stylist because I'd walk around the market and everyone would have their wares laid out, their food out. This is what you can expect when you buy it. And that's food styling. And I thought, 
I love that. That's appealing to me. That's telling me that they want me to buy their product because it looks that way. And I thought, well, that must be a job. Yeah. I looked it up and it was. Well, yeah. And so after deciding that, you emailed um, Mitzi Wilson, uh, the food director of Sainsbury's magazine, and I'm asking for an internship. Yeah. And I feel like that's a really common thread when I was researching your story that you really aren't afraid to reach out and ask for what you want. And it seems more often than not, people are willing to help. Yeah. And to be honest, if there's one person I could credit in my entire life is Mitzi Wilson. She took a chance on me when nobody else would. She let me come to Saints Magazine. She sort of, I was a little pet project in many ways. And that had its good and bad points. Like she taught me everything. I still do her meringue recipe to this day when I'm trying to do things. And I remember the things she taught me. And there's no one that makes me more proud than when she comments on my things, like saying, well done this, oh, this is so brilliant because she helped me. And really in life, you have to have people that help you. You can't just be, you can't just go out and do these things on your own. There's always a level of someone has to give you a step up somewhere. Yeah. And she did, but then... You know, no offense to Sainsbury's magazine. When she left, they fired me because I was her pet project. Um, they didn't have the resources to teach me. But that was the best thing they ever did because then I went on to become a, an assistant to food stylists and I did campaigns for Colgate and campaigns for like all of these big brands. And there's probably a theme that you'll see in my life is I skip all the formalities. So I did like a couple of months of assisting and then I went out and got my own food style jobs and I landed a job for Emirates doing their advert the food in that advert, I got paid £750 a day. Whoa. <laughs> and I was like, Whoa. wow, I didn't know you could get paid that amount of money per day. And I skipped all the formalities and I just did the cool stuff. And um, and then when those work dried up, I'd go back to assisting and I did McDonald's adverts in Germany with my friend Udo, who's a big stylist for them. And I've just always found my way somehow. And somehow it's always been through food. Yeah. Well, I, think, I think a lot of people listening to this will be inspired by the way that you go out and make things happen. Because a lot of people sit at home dreaming of things, but actually there's a big difference between making that a reality. Thank you very much. And I think on that point, it is all about, don't be deluded that I'm out there every day doing it. Some days I just sit in the house and watch TV for four days straight <laughs> and I'm trying to recover. It takes a lot of energy to be to be me. Yeah. And it really does. And I make a hell of a lot of mistakes. And and I'm sure there are people that, well, I'm not sure because I don't know, but, I'm, but perhaps there are people that you reach out to who just never get back to you. So it's a question of just putting it out there as much as you can. Yeah, no, people will find me absolutely annoying <laughs> because, you know, I'm out there saying, well, I want to do this and, and will you help me? And I'm sure Nigella at times is like, will you stop texting me, please? But okay, now you're just making us all very glad <laughs> that you have Nigella's number. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. That is the best dish you've ever eaten. This one was hard, really, really, really hard. I'm so stuck on an answer because controversially i really find home cooking better than restaurant cooking because I, f I connect more to it so if i'm really really honest the best thing i've ever eaten goes back to my first thing from, from a childhood is panacoli again from my mother that and it's not because she's dead it's not because she's not here it's because that genuinely is i think you can't just name the best thing i've ever eaten if it's not just for pleasure i enjoyed it and i loved it i've eaten wonderful things at restaurants you know but for me, it has to be num the answer number one as well. Pinacleti, really. I tried so hard to find something exciting and say, you know, Rick Stein's fish in pad store. But it wasn't. Authentically, if I'm being truthful, that is me. Yeah. No, I love that as an answer. And I think it shows how much that dish means to you. Yeah. yeah. And what it gives to you. Yeah. And also for other people, they might try it. And, you know, food's incredibly subjective. And think, well, what's he talking about? But for me, that is the most powerful thing in my life. Yeah. And and actually amazing to have a choice for the best dish you've ever eaten, something that you can eat time and time again. Yeah. Because so often people just pick one thing. Something from Norma. Well, yeah, and that you, you can't recreate and, and they pick it because it was the occasion and the moment and all of that. But for you, that's very nice that you have something that you can go back to. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had wonderful, wonderful other food moments, you know, like calamari on a beach in Greece. And, and that's the environment more than anything. But for me, it was my answer had to be authentically about where the food was. Yeah. No, I love that. Okay. So in your words, a drunken tweet on a Tuesday evening really was the genesis for Life Kitchen. I wondered what did the tweet say and how did the tweet garner so much attention? Tuesday night, 7pm. I remember it so well. And it, the reason I decided to do it was my, my ex-boyfriend at the time, 
he had called me to say he was going to be late coming home because he was just buying a homeless guy some lunch, some dinner. Northern in me there, some dinner. And he said, I'm going to be home late. And I'd had one vodka, two vodkas. Um, <laughs> vodka and Coke, because I'm so Northern. I'm not a classy person at all. <laughs> when I go to events, people are like, really? You want a vodka and Coke? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. But that night was... Um, I thought, I want, to, I want to do this. I've been thinking about the idea. I didn't know how it was going to look, what it was going to do. But all I put in that tweet was, I want to do one cookery class for people living with cancer. Has anyone got a venue, the food, sort of something that you can help me do it with? Because I know about 50% of people lose their sense of taste. And I wonder if I can help. And that's kind of a grandiose thing to think about myself. I'd only just come from internships at Sainsbury's and I was like, well, but I felt like I had learned so much and it had changed so much in my mindset and my ability that if just people who are struggling can take a little bit of this on board, then it might help them. Turns out I was right. But that tweet went out and overnight it went viral. Three, three, four hundred retweets by the morning. And I thought, well, there's something in this. Loads of offers of help. And literally... I decided I'll launch a campaign to try and get it off the ground. And a couple of days later, the BBC uh, Today programme called me and said, would you like to come on and talk Just about it? Just out of the blue. Well, there'd been a more and more tension online and people have been trying to say, why don't you crowdfund and do this and do that? And they said, do you want to come on? And I was like, I only really announced this like five days ago, maybe a week. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to say. So, um, you know, biggest radio show in the UK, 10 million people on a morning. I was like, this is one hell of a way to launch it. And I went on that show and I was in the green room with the French, French Canadian <laughs> trade minister. Yeah. He was the other guest. <laughs> and I was sitting next to him and I must, I was 20 and I already look 12 now. So I looked about, you know, fetus in that room. And he was just looking at me. He was like, so what do you do? <laughs> and I was like... I'm here to talk about this. And then when he went to do his segment, he was like, and you've got a lovely guest coming up next who's got this amazing idea. And I'm like, this is like the French Canadian trade minister of Canada. Just being like... That's incredible. Yeah, that was my first taste of someone high-powered backing me. And I came off air after three minutes of talking about it. When you're listening to it, it sounds like a good amount of time when you're on, it's, I breathed and I was gone. Yeah. And I came off air and I had phone calls from Hugh Finney-Wittenstall's team saying, why don't you come lunch Life Kitchen at River Cottage? We had thousands of pounds raised in our online donation thing. I had a tweet from Sue Perkins saying, if you ever need to help, then let <laughs> me know. And I literally, I came off air at um, the building we're next door to right now, actually, at the BBC. And... I just walked out of there and there was no, I had no one else with me. I was just on my own and my phone was blowing up like thousands and thousands of messages. And I was just like wandering, wandering around London, just like in circles. I didn't know where I was going to be. And I ended up, you know, the Ivy Brasserie thing. Yes. There, and I just thought, I'll go in there and sit down. <laughs> it's a good place to end up. But right? I've never been before. <laughs> and I just, I needed somewhere and I went in and I was just like babbling. I was like, please, can you put me in a corner? I just need like to sit down, have a drink and eat something. And I need to charge my phone because it was like more messages. My phone was dying. And I went through them all and the support was stratospheric. That's amazing. And my life changed from that day. Yeah. So after you said, so after that appearance, how long was it before you were at the River Cottage doing your first cookery class? You know, I think it was, some, it was quite a while, six to nine months. Okay. Thing, because it took so long to get together. I mean, yeah. I remember I tweeted that having no idea how to physically do it. And that was the point where I came across Professor Barry Smith. Yes. I wanted to ask about him. So I came across him on a BBC podcast um, and I heard him talking about taste and the senses. And I was like, well, if you're going to launch an organization at this point, it was just one cooking class I was going to launch. But I was like, if you're going to launch that, then we need to do it with someone who understands. So I emailed him and he got back to me and he said, yeah, I'd love to help. So, I so he's, he's a professor in the census. He founded the Centre for the Study of the Census yeah. at the University of London. Okay. And he's very prestigious, very world-renowned, goes around all of you know, the conferences and, and writes scientific papers. And he's worked with me since the beginning and still does. I mean, I was just with him before here, just Amazing. talking about some new ideas for stuff. And he is perfect. He can translate the science into stuff that I can understand because I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist and they tell you things and it gets very complex. But for me, he was just the perfect person. And he talked a lot about umami. He talked a lot about all of the stuff that I've banged on about now for years. My friends are relentless. They're always like, has it got umami in it, Ryan? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and we, we got together and we developed some recipes, some of the ones that are still in the book to this day. And we went and we went to River Cottage and I put it out there and I was going to do it there. 
And we, we said two sessions, 20 people in each. If you're ever going to launch a cookery class for the first time, presenting live, do not accept 20 guests know, in a, each, plus yeah, a, a Daily lot. Mail journalist, plus ITV News and Sue Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> it was an intense... Was she more of a help than a hindrance? Oh, or? she was a help. <laughs> yeah, it was her and Anna Richardson as well. So um, it was a very intense day of my life. And also the Observer was there interviewing me. Wow. So I had two journalists, camera crew, 40 guests, two celebrities at the beautiful River Cottage launching... Um, a sort of beta test of a cookery class that I just invented in my head. I mean, I guess that's the way to do it, isn't it? Throw yourself into the deep end. And it was the deep and, end. <laughs> yeah, sink or swim. Yeah, and, and, you, and you swam. Yeah, unfo- I, unfortunately, I don't think I felt that at the time. <laughs> no, it never feels like that at the time. Let's pause there briefly and talk about the fourth desert island dish, and that is your favourite sandwich. This one, for me, it goes back to my northern, my northern roots, and it's got to be a hot beef dip. So just beef and gravy in a bun, bit of stuff. And Wait, talk me through this. This so sounds amazing. You need a, a yeah. thick white bun. You yeah. need some leftover roast beef. It's not pink at this stage. It's been sitting in gravy for like four hours. Okay. Pop that on. The base of, of some like real crappy Paxo stuffing or something. And then dip it back in the gravy. It's dip amazing. the roll in the yeah, gravy. Yeah, it's got gravy on the inside already. Dip it in the outside if you want more. Amazing. You know, some of the restaurants in London have started to do anything and they're really, really trendy. And I'm like, we were here first, Yeah, guys. I don't think I've ever had one and I feel like I'm majorly yeah. missing out. You, I also feel like that's a technique that we could utilize for the Christmas sandwich. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100% and it, would, it works every time. Yeah. And maybe that's the inspiration behind um, Ross Geller's Moist Maker in uh, Friends with the Christmas Sandwich. He, I think maybe... He I'm, was northern at yeah. heart, you can tell. <laughs> So the premise of Life Kitchen is that many patients undergoing chemotherapy report a change in their sense of taste. And some can experience food as more salty or metallic and others lose the sense altogether. So Life Kitchen is a way of teaching them about how to cook food that they can fall in love with again. Yeah. So yeah, so it's about trying to get people back into the pleasures of eating. And something that we face criticism of is that we're not based in medical and we're not based in nutrition. We're based in science, but also in food. Yeah, and so, enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. enjoyment is the... I always say this, we're an enjoyment organisation. We're yeah. not anything else. You want to get your um, nutrition advice? You know where they are. Because presumably, I mean, yeah, if you're dealing with cancer, you don't want to be lectured. It's miserable enough. Yeah, you, you're looking for fun and pleasure if and I, enjoyment. You don't want to learn about more medical. Yeah, stuff. if I try to convince my mother to go to a cooking class that had a nutritional element, I mean, not saying that some of our stuff isn't nutritional, by de facto it is. But if I try to convince her, let's go to this class where they're going to teach you how to make a really nutritional burger. She would say no. I would say no. <laughs> and I still do say no. I, I get asked all the time to go collaborate with nutritionists. And the only thing I've ever done in that way was with the World Cancer Research Fund. And that was because we could reach so many people. and They understand our vision. And it, it took me two years to write those first recipes with them because we went back and forth on the salt and the fat content so much <laughs> until I was finally happy. And, um, but, sorry to them for taking so long. But the, the live kitchen, it must be such a balance between making the recipes easy, but then also sort of packed full of flavor and yeah. zing. And that sometimes can make your recipe sound slightly repetitive at times. You know, I was famously at one point known for just using harissa and everything. And a squeeze of lemon. Squeeze of lemon. Well, that troll <laughs> on The Guardian once said, all he does is put lemons on, squeeze lemons on things. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Yeah. <laughs> because it's true. A city is a building block of flavor. Salmon Nosrat said it the best sulfur acid heat is the building blocks of every good recipe including one of my most favorite ones my miso white chocolate berries from my cookbook that is a classic dish that is you know in the ivory i've never eaten it i've yeah. heard about it and took it on board and you know i added miso to it that adds a, so- a savory and salty tang and makes it the new salted caramel and it has that salt fat acid a little bit of the heat from the texture temperature change and it's just, um, yeah, it's a very important building block for all flavour. Yeah. God, that sounds amazing. Just, it's honestly brilliant. Yeah, sounds really good. Okay, let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. What is the dish you eat the most often? Again, back to my northern roots. Really, really classic chili con carne with rice. I just love it. And I'm not talking fancy using spices. I'm talking a Coleman's packet mix. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's only the Coleman's one. I've tried other brands and honestly, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't hit okay. the same way. Well, that's good to know. Um, <laughs> me, you know, you slice the onions, you brown them and stuff. And the thing is now I do add a few extra little techniques to it. 
Well, Tom Kerridge taught me how to, if you roast mince in the oven yeah. until it's really super crisp, that's how you should always do mince for um, spitable nays or anything. Ooh. It evaporates the water content, it adds a crispiness, and then when you add the tomatoes and things into it, it really keeps the flavour there and it browns it and gives the Maillard reaction. It's the most wonderful tip. Yeah, that is a good idea. I remember learning that from Heston. <laughs> But he did it in a pan in sort of hundred batches, making it really, really crispy. Mm. But the he oven could have saved a lot of time yeah. and put it in the oven. Let's, let's give Heston a call. I mean, Barry um, Best Buy works a lot with Heston. I'll get him to okay. pass it on. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, um, that I do things like that to it now. But it's a very simple dish and something that I'm absolutely still obsessed with to this day. Like I make it all the time. It's my dad's favorite, and you know I'm not. I'm not in this world anymore where I'm out there eating a lot of food. None of us are right now. But so I'm at home and I'm cooking the familiar and I'm cooking the things my dad wants. And he works for Life Kitchen as well. So our lives are constantly surrounded by things. And sometimes you just want to eat classic, nice food. Yeah. So with the Life Kitchen, you're contending with a lot because presumably the classes are expensive to put on, but they're free for the people who come. Why is it so important to you that the classes are free? It's so important to me because we didn't have any money when I was growing up. My mum had to take medical retirement. My dad had a job, but they kept giving him a lot of grief because there were so many hospital appointments. And he eventually, I think, got fired from it because of it, which is very illegal, I'm sure. But we didn't have a lot of money. I, you know, I was definitely better off than a lot of the kids I went to school with. You know, we owned our house on a council estate, but at least we owned it. And, you know, there was things that my parents had worked, they worked so hard, so hard to give us what we had. So when it was all sort of falling apart, we didn't have much, but my mum never let me see that. You know, in fact, when I went to school on holiday in Malta, she just found the money for it, you know, all those little things. And she was always very passionate about me enjoying life as well. So when it came to Life Kitchen, I was like, well, it just has to be free. It just has to be. And everything we've ever done has been other than the, the first cookbook, because you can't physically make a cookbook. Apart from I just did yeah. come on your well, Christmas yes. book. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, I just thought cancer isn't socioeconomic. So there's a lot of people out there who need it. And I've seen that throughout um, even the pandemic. We did a lot of free classes online. And for some of them, we provided gift vouchers so they could buy the food at the other end. Amazing. I'm just all about accessibility because also, and this is a real juxtaposition of my life right now. I live quite a luxurious life now. I really do. I get, go to fancy parties. I wear nice clothes. I, um, I, go, I get invited to restaurants, I'm, you know, got private islands for dinner. My friend has a restaurant, a private island now. Things that I could never have imagined. I don't necessarily pay for now. Yeah. <laughs> they're still luxurious experiences. Yeah. And Life Kitchen is a luxurious experience. And I've always been very keen on that. You've never seen us at a community centre because I refuse to do that. You know, no hate to community centres. But I always think back to my mother. If she was going to be so ill on the sofa and I was like, we're going to a cookery class. You wanted to be at River Cottage. You wanted to be at Jamie Oliver's cookery school. You wanted to be at Dalesford in the Cotswolds. Yeah, you want to start with a glass of champagne. And we do start with a glass of champagne. (laughs) I think that's more preference for me than others. But still, it's always been about giving, giving back. But I don't think charity or it's not necessarily charity, but I don't think giving has to be cost effective. I think it has to be something that really makes an impact. And that's something I've always lived by. Yeah. So a lot of your time, I mean, you're doing these classes, but presumably there's always fundraising that needs to happen to keep the money flowing. And Live Kitchen is growing so quickly. There's been a lot for you to think about. I mean, you've just released two cookbooks this year. In one year. year. In one year. Who does that? Frankly, it's just showing off, right? (laughs) But um, how do you manage all of that? With a very good team of people. Kimberly keeps everything going. Without her, I would be, I'd be a mess. Um, Dad looks after the stuff that I just can't physically think about. Like the word accountant makes me want to die. <laughs> um, and whenever they email me, I'm like, Dad. <laughs> and that's, a, that's a, you know, I'm a good entrepreneur in terms of I can create and do things in this way and everything you see that happens. But I'm a bad entrepreneur in the fact that I don't really care about the back end of things. I just want to do the things that I find, I find exciting that other people will love. Yeah. And for me, that's been a real eye opener and a problem at times. Dad's like, we're going to run out of money. And I don't really like the donation side of things too much. Um, so we do a lot through funding. Okay. And trying so to get... So through sort of the, the NHS? NHS, the, okay. the CCGs, the clinical commissioning groups, um, especially in the Northeast, they have backed us to the hill. Amazing. 
and you know we deliver really good value for for what we do you know i my salary a month is only 1500 quid i don't earn a lot of money i earn my money from other stuff that i get to do which is a privilege i now have so you know it's not like we're out there with tons and tons of cash yeah each cookery class costs about a thousand pounds okay um, ingredients yeah and putting ingredients it time travel yeah sometimes the venues can to fund all of the costs sometimes you've got to help people are just businesses yeah you know we've seen now the world is falling apart and small businesses are being hit the most now i've always been very conscious about that i've always been very good at wrangling the bigger businesses yeah. to help me <laughs> like MS and i have been very good friends for a few years now oh since they're I, a good friend to have since i won the ofm um, award let's pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish and that is your go-to dinner party dish right now this one i've got a very defined answer for and it's something i'm so i just love it and yeah. people expect when you are a best-selling chef or a multi-award winning cook that you are going to go all out okay i can't wait to hear most people <laughs> most of my friends who are these people don't and that and that is because the same thing we talked about earlier we don't always want to cook for you just because you are friends <laughs> so i make medium rare steak roasties and a really tarragon heavy bernays and that's it that's all you need who needs veg at dinner party oh, no veg is overrated to be fair, if i was going to do veg <laughs> i just do simple tender stem with parmesan Ooh. but you know i'm really passionate about roasties right you do know this okay, this is so my one me. thing in life tell me so my ex-boyfriend wonderful wonderful person wonderful cook he taught me a lot of my stuff while i was learning to cook and he was brilliant and instead of when you peel a roast potato you normally cut it in maybe four so it's like square rectangle-ish like got some shapes yeah i go directly down the middle vertically so they're thin but long oh okay so if they're but you get to turn it on its edge cut it vertically yeah You've got two halves they're low of the tray you boil them, salt the water, classic, normal. Don't bother shaking them up. You don't need to rough the edges. Put them in a tray. Wait, sorry. So you've only cut them in half once? Once. Once. So they're two bits of a potato. So it's round on the top and then the flat yeah, bits flat. on the bottom. Yeah. Okay. And he's long. Yeah. yeah. And like a chunky chip. Yeah, but like domed. Round. Yeah. Domed, but yes. low to the tray. <laughs> yeah. And the recipe's in a life kitchen Christmas okay. if anyone wants it. But it's really simple. And you boil them and then you just put loads of duck fat in, put them in the oven. An hour. Started at 240 degrees. The highest your oven will go. Um, 30 minutes turn, 30 minutes turn, and you will just get the fluffiest outside, but the most shatteringly crisp outside. So tell us about the, so it was the Observer Food Monthly Award. Yeah, so in 2018, I was nominated for the Best Ethical Food Project. And I don't know how much you know about the awards, but they are, they're like the Oscars of the yeah, food world. Yeah, they're very prestigious. And you get the best goodie bag ever. I was up for it and I just got the email to say that loads of people had nominated me. That was amazing. And that if I wanted to win, I'd have to get the votes. And I did. I and got, so who were you up against? Um, Quite a few people. Um, Jack Monroe that year, who's a friend of mine, she was on the cover because she'd won, I think, the Best Personality Award. Um, I won the Best Ethical Food Project, presented to me by Nigella and Jay Arena, and I cried my heart out on the stage. But I did a little film. I knew I'd won before the ceremony. Okay. So me and Sue Perkins filmed this little video in her house. Um, very staged. I walked down the street and she's like, Ryan, so good to see you. Uh, how <laughs> wonderful that you're here in this completely unrehearsed. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, Sue, what are you doing? And she's here? like, come in for some tea. <laughs> and um, it's really funny. And then we played this video out and every single person in the audience was like, big in the food world and i was just coming up and i was this working class boy and i'd been fired from the magazines and i taught myself and here i was getting the biggest award in the food industry and um i got up on stage and nigella, I, nigella and i had been talking earlier that day and she was just like are you gonna be okay and i was like no <laughs> definitely not and i wasn't and the photos of me it was just blurry eyed <laughs> red face awfulness <laughs> and it was just wonderful like i won that award i came out we did all the, the photo shoots you've got to do and like, oh, Lengi was like, congratulations. And I was like, oh my God. And it was all these people who were just like, that was when I first met Tom Kerridge and he was like, brilliant. I'm so proud of you. And Stanley Tushi and Felicity Blunt were there. Who Felicity's now my agent. Oh, wow. And Stanley gave me a, a standing ovation. And now he, now his wife's my agent. Like the world works in very mysterious yeah, and ways. That, I mean, that was only two years ago. Yeah. It was and amazing. The day after that, I had six offers for a book deal. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. And I went with Bloomsbury, um, basically because when I was younger, Harry Potter was my life. And I trusted them as a name. And I think I created a fantastic book with them. That is a very good reason for picking a publisher. Because yeah, loads of publishers turned Harry Potter down. Yeah. But they knew what was up. So that brings us on neatly to Cookbook Corner on Desert Island Dishes. We like to know what is your most treasured cookbook? 
See, this was really hard for me because there are so many amazing cookbooks and it's really hard when you're in an industry of friends who all write cookbooks. It might sound like a large industry, but there's maybe like 400 of us in food who are the main players. And Nigella's How to Eat is the classic that everyone turns to and me as well. And it's hard to pick between that and the Jamie, any of Jamie's books that I learned to cook with in the beginning. Yeah. Because Nigella taught me about the pleasure of food while Jamie taught me that it was easy to do. And both of those are what I've translated across into teaching other people. So I'd be forever grateful to, to both of them and to Nigel because they just, they might, they're the titans of food for a reason. Like yeah. They do it well. They do it well in their own ways as well. Like Nigella was the most glamorous, cool, like loving person. But when I was really down, she invited me to her house for dinner and I was just like, that doesn't happen to anyone and I'm very passionate about our friendship, probably more so than she is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Jamie, when I did his cookery school, he paid for the whole thing, all the food, all the staff, everything. He was like, don't worry about it. Nigel tweeted about my book on the day it came out saying, happy publication day. And, you know, I grew up with these people, like watching these people. So all of their books would make it in my cookbook corner. But if I, I, will, I will allow you to have all of them. Thank you. I'm very kind. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. That is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Well, we're going to go round and round in circles in this because everything I've told you in this podcast is what I would eat. But yeah, so you could have many. So courses. I would say that as menu one. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I'll give you a menu two <laughs> okay. for, a bit, for a bit of interest. Yeah. And genuinely, it's so simple. I would go for something like a baked camembert with some crusty bread to start with. I do my carbonara, which is better than anyone else's. Okay. I'm really sorry. That's a big claim. What makes and it? And it's completely inauthentic. And okay. it sometimes gets posted on Italian pages. People have a go at it on oh. <laughs> Um But it starts with onions, garlic, and chili. And you sweat those down with salt on a very low temperature until they become a real, like to almost disintegrate. And that gives such a hearty, heavy base. And then you add pancetta into that or smoked lardons. And then in a bowl, five eggs, three with their full eggs, two egg yolks, yeah. a whole block of parmesan. Whisk that together with a fork. Is this for one person? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've made it solo many, many times. And then into that, you just make whatever pasta you want. While it's nearly finished, add in peas. I always like peas, like I think because you have to get rid of health somewhere. A little bit of green. Yeah. And then off the heat, toss through the onion mixture in with the parmesan and the, and the lardons. Toss it through till it emulsifies completely. Tear over loads of fresh mint. And it's absolutely delicious. Ooh, that does sound really good. So I'd have carbonara for mint made exactly that way okay and um, lots and lots of um, black pepper in that as well and then for dessert now i say i'm not a dessert person but i do love to still eat them okay but i can't find anything i'm completely passionate about i love salted caramel as a thing you could have a um, combination yeah let's have a mezzi yeah <laughs> but it'd be like some like salted caramel dips it would be profiteroles jeremy lee's profiteroles from corvadas actually you know, I don't, I don't know how many of your listeners know, but he's an icon in the food world. Yes. And he makes it, I think he makes it, and I haven't asked him, but I think he makes it half cream, half ice cream in the middle Ooh. with chocolate sauce. I might be wrong. I mean, it, if he doesn't, that is. If he doesn't, he that's how he should make them, yeah. <laughs> Are you listening, Jeremy? Um, <laughs> I just love, so I'd have those. I would have an apple crumble. I think there's nothing better than apple crumble in life, actually. But the thing is, I'm not passionate about it. I love it and I'd eat it. You just have like a mouthful of each. Yeah, things. yeah. Okay. And maybe that's, I'm still looking for that dessert that okay. I'm in love with. If you're out there. If you're out there, give me a call. <laughs> Ryan, those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been honestly a thrill. Thank you for <laughs> letting me ramble on about my life. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and it really does make such a difference. Thank you so much for your lovely reviews that you've already left. You lot really are the best. Thank you. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. It's changed from Margie Namora. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. And I will see you next week on Christmas Eve. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to our sponsor, Kalinko.